Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12. We're gonna go ahead and read through verse 17. And it says this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the time that we have here this morning. And I pray, God, that you would do something in our hearts in this time, Lord, that we would Um, that our hearts and our minds and our eyes would be opened to the authority of your word. I pray, God, that we would have that cemented deep in our soul, God, that, that you have spoken and that is authoritative, that when you speak, that stands as a decree. And Father God, I thank you for that. And I pray that you would help me, my feeble attempt here to communicate these truths, God, that you would empower them. Holy Spirit, come and teach us and uh, anoint this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we live in a moment in history when many of the core doctrines of our faith are under attack. And not just from the outside, but from within the church. Now, this is nothing new. The Bible warns of this. And Christians in every generation have had to contend for the faith and make serious effort to preserve the truth of God's word and faithfully pass it on to the next generation. Every generation has had to do that. And our generation is no different. Although I will say, I do believe that we are certainly experiencing an intense and concentrated attack at this moment in history on many of the core doctrines of our faith. False teaching abounds today. And I'm talking about within the church. There's tons of false teaching. Um, There are a great number of false teachers and people who believe and perpetuate that false teaching. And I think we have a unique burden in this age, just a unique burden of responsibility to contend for the truth of God's word in an age when the rise of social media has made possible, like never before, the rapid spread of false doctrine. You just click and share. I read an article. Oh, it sounds good to me. I, I'm not rooted in the scriptures myself. I'm not discerning. I, I, I don't have any kind of background, but that sounds good. And somebody holding a Bible said it works for me. Click and share. And there it goes. Just rapid spread of false teaching and bad doctrine all over the place. And perhaps no teaching, no doctrine is so under attack as is the authority of the Bible itself. And in fact, I think, actually, this goes hand in hand with all other 
false teaching because if you can undermine the authority of the scriptures, then you can pass off any other false teaching you want to because you've eliminated the Bible as the objective authority by which to measure truth or test doctrine. You can see that that passage that we just read said, all scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for teaching. That is our teaching. Whatever we teach should be rooted and should come out of the scriptures. But if you undermine the authority of the scriptures, you can pass off any false teaching you want. Because then what do we test that teaching by? Our opinion, our thoughts, our preferences, culture. What do we test false teaching by? Scripture says we test it by scripture. But if you eliminate the authority of the scriptures, if you say, well, the scripture's not really an authority, then, hey, anything goes, right? You can pass off anything you want. So what I want to do this morning and in the next couple weeks is to address the question, why should we trust the Bible? Like, why do we believe that the Bible is not just any other book, but is actually the very word of God? a revelation from God himself to us. From a divine perspective, obviously we're convinced that the Bible is the word of God because of the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Now all that means is that the Holy Spirit, when we became believers, when we surrendered our lives to Jesus and and began to follow him, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us and begins to do a work inside of us. And one of the things that he does is is gives us this inward witness. He bears witness with our spirit that these are the very words of God. That This has come from God, that this book is like no other book. The spirit of God is the one who convinces us of the authority and veracity of scripture. Okay? And the spirit does this work in us each internally. But this doesn't mean that there are no rational supports for that conviction. The fact is there are many sound evidences and convincing proofs that the Bible is God's word. Our faith is built upon solid evidence. I want to assure you of that this morning. Our faith is built upon solid evidence. And the foundation of our faith and everything that we teach and everything we believe is this book. And so there are many compelling reasons why we believe that this book is like no other book. Listen, why believe something that's just written in a book that's just a bunch of collection of man's thoughts and ideas about God? Hit or miss, you know? It just contains some spiritual ideas, right or wrong. Why not just go read Harry Potter and make your theology based off of that? Not that you're reading Harry Potter's wrong. I'm just saying that has spiritual ideas too, right? Why not read any other old book that claims to be a holy book? Why this book and not other books? That's a legitimate question, right? So why should we as Christians trust in this Bible as the word of God? Many compelling reasons. Now, it's still gonna require a step of faith, but I trust that and I pray that as a result of our time together this next couple weeks, that you'll see it is a reasonable step of faith to trust in the scriptures as the word of God. For some of you, uh, this may feel like going to school like information overkill. Like, okay, great. So I apologize in advance if that's what it feels like for you. I hope it doesn't. For others, this may feel like we're just barely scratching the surface of each point, because we really are, uh, and you're going to want to drill down deeper, and that's cool. We can have further conversations about that. But, uh, you know, for better or worse, let's dive in, okay? (laughs) Why do we believe that the Bible is the Word of God? I've got, like, nine... 10, maybe 12 reasons to share with you over the course of the next couple of weeks. We'll see how many we can kind of uh, get through, but we're only going to cover three of them today. 
One more thing. As we dive in, keep in mind that because we're addressing false teaching that arises from within the church, false teaching about what the Bible is, because we're addressing false teaching from within the church, I'm going to speak primarily to us as Christians. Okay, And these points are not primarily aimed at unbelievers, although I would think that an unbeliever would, be, would find tons of incredibly compelling evidence in these reasons to put their trust in the scriptures. But I just want you to understand that I'm speaking to us as Christians. Uh, so why? Why do we as Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God? Let's give you three reasons today. Number one, the direct claims of the Bible. The direct claims of the Bible. So the Bible is the authority in all matters that it addresses. When the Bible speaks on a subject, it is the authority on that subject. Okay? And this includes its own direct claims about itself. Okay? The Bible actually claims to be the Word of God. So this is not an idea or a doctrine that we're forcing onto the Bible from outside. It's an idea that comes from the Bible itself. Okay? So let's put it this way. When a defendant is brought into a courtroom, he's allowed to testify for himself, right? So let's let the Bible testify for itself. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. It's very, very, very common nowadays for Christians and even uh, quote-unquote Christian teachers to say things like, well, the Bible's just a collection of men's ideas and thoughts about God. It's just kind of ancient poems and whatever and documents and things that, you know, and it's because it's man's thoughts about God, it's, you know, it's, it's hit or miss. Some things are good and some things are not. And we're talking about Christian, people who claim to be Christian teaching things like this. Like, yeah, it's just give or take, hit or miss. Or to say things like, well, the Bible's just a, a bunch of great stories that just teach good morals. Or the Bible is only useful as a historical document or an account of the outdated beliefs of ancient people and has nothing really to say and no binding precedence for 2017. Or any number of other descriptions that, unfortunately, many who claim to be Christians give about what the Bible is. The big problem with statements like that is that what these people say about the Bible directly contradicts what the Bible says about the Bible. So one of the most basic principles of biblical interpretation, when I'm reading something, how do I interpret that? One of the most basic principles of biblical interpretation is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. If I come to a passage that's talking about a subject, well, what does the rest of the Bible say about that subject? If I'm confused about what this passage means, let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. What else does the Bible say about this subject? Okay? So let's let the Bible speak. Let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let's let the Bible interpret itself and speak for itself. And the scriptures themselves tell us what they are. Let's, let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. And we've already read it, but let's read it again. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, just to highlight this verse. All Scripture is what? 
breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So the Bible claims not to be the word of man or of culture or society. The Bible claims to be the word of God. So when the Bible speaks for itself, it says, I'm not a collection of just man's writings about God that are hit or miss. I'm actually from God. I'm actually a direct revelation from God. When the Bible speaks for itself, that's what it's saying. Some translations here says all scripture is given by inspiration of God or all scripture is given, all scripture is inspired by God. Some translations say all scripture is God breathed or the ESV says breathed out by God. And I think the ESV translation that we're reading here actually nails it because all of those phrases, no matter how you translate that, inspired by God, given by inspiration of God, God breathed, breathed out by God, all of that comes from one Greek word, theonoustos, okay? Okay. It's a compound word, theos, meaning God, and neustos, meaning breath or spirit. So it literally means God breathed. God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. God is the one who breathed out the scriptures. That God literally breathed out the scriptures as it was recorded by secondary human authors. That's what the Bible says about itself. Does that make sense? This, now stay with me, track with me here. Because this is how we kind of, people attack the Bible. So this verse actually says nothing about God inspiring the authors. The authors were moved by the Holy Spirit for sure. But this doesn't say that the authors were inspired. It says that the text of scripture itself was inspired or breathed out by God. That's important. So it's not that, that the scripture is, stay, stay with me. This is going to seem like splitting hairs, but it's really important. It, it's not... It's not that the scripture is breathed into by God as if men wrote something and then God breathed into it and suddenly it became inspired. Rather, what this scripture is saying is that all scripture was breathed out by God himself and recorded by human authors. There's a big difference. You see that? The origin is the difference. Did this originate in the heart and mind of man? Or did this originate in the heart and mind of God? So men didn't write stuff and God breathed on it and made it inspired, okay? God breathed out the scriptures and he used secondary human authors to do it, okay? That's what the scripture itself says about itself. God is the source and ultimate author of the sacred writings. The Bible is the product of the divine breath of God. Over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, we read statements like this. Thus says the Lord, or the Lord said, or the word of the Lord came to me, saying. This is God speaking over and over again. We read these direct claims in the scripture. And when we come to the New Testament, we read verses that are equally emphatic. It's not in your notes, but if you want to jot this down, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. The writer says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So the authors themselves were very aware that their message did not originate within themselves. It was not dredged up from culture or society, but it was a transcendent message that that is coming from the mouth of God himself through their pen to us. Here's another one that's not in your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Scripture over and over and over again saying, This originated in the heart and mind of God. This is not man's thoughts and ideas about God, hit or miss, take it or leave it. This is God's direct personal self revelation of Himself through secondary human authors. That's very, very, very important. And when we actually compare Old Testament verses with the New Testament, this is an interesting study. How many times this happens? So many times when something in the Old Testament says, when God said, in the New Testament, it's recorded as the scripture says. Or the reverse, the scripture says, and then in the New Testament it'll say, and God said. They're used interchangeably over and over and over again. So God and the scripture speak with one voice because scripture is the voice of God. A common saying in the church for generations, I think Augustine and Calvin and them would say this, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That is what the Bible has to say about any given issue is what God has to say about any given issue. Because it's not from men, it's from God, through men. The scripture itself is crystal clear in its own direct testimony about itself. It is the word of God. So it's always mind-boggling to me when someone claims to have a high view of the authority of scripture while directly contradicting what the scripture says about itself. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, your faith is rooted in the teachings that come from this book. Your faith is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the only way we know about the person and work of Jesus Christ is through the revelation that God himself has given us through these secondary human authors in the scriptures. So to be a Christian and attack the authority of scriptures is like a misnomer. It's like a, it doesn't work You negate then the authority by which you test all other doctrine. How do I know if a doctrine is sound or not? Well, Scripture says Scripture is given for teaching, for doctrines. How do I know if what somebody's teaching is a false teaching? Well, does it line up with the Scriptures? Second reason why... Do we believe that the Bible is the word of God? Number one was the direct claims of the Bible. Number two, the perfect unity of the Bible. The perfect unity of the Bible. The more and more we study the Bible, the more we're impressed with the amazing unity in the midst of all of its diversity. So let's consider first the amazing diversity of the scripture, okay? 66 different books. The Bible is not one book. It's all together as one book now, but it's actually a collective 66 different books written over a period of some 15 to 1600 years by over 40 different human authors on three different continents writing in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Consider the diversity of the authors. Two of them were kings, three were priests, one was a physician, two were fishermen, two were shepherds, one was a former Pharisee, two were statesmen, one was a tax collector, one was a military general, one was a scribe, one was a cupbearer, and one was a goat herder. Now let's consider the diversity of the literary genre in which they wrote. In the scriptures, there is narrative and poetry, prophecy, proverb, parable, gospel, epistle, allegory, song, legal writings, and on and on and on. 
so many different literary genres in the scripture. Consider the diversity of where the human authors were when they, when they wrote the Sinai Desert, the Palace of Jerusalem, a cave in Judea, the Palace of Sheshem, beside the River of Babylon, the land of Egypt, Macedonia, Greece, Rome, the barren island of Patmos. Consider the diversity of its many parts. There are almost 3,000 different cast members in the storyline of the Bible, spanning some 1,189 chapters, 31,000 verses, 700,000 words containing three and a half million letters. And yet, despite this complex diversity, the Bible speaks with one voice, one plan of salvation, one people of God, one story of human history, one problem of mankind, one solution for this problem, one standard of morality, one chief object of its message. It is always speaking with one unified voice, confirming itself over and over and over again in the middle of all of that diversity, such unity of message. How do you account for this kind of unity in the midst of such diversity? The most reasonable explanation is that there is one ultimate author who stands behind this entire book and has breathed it out. And that author is God himself. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose every state in the union was asked to excavate its natural stone, box it in a crate, and send it to the nation's capital. And all 50 states would participate. Okay? So crates begin to show up containing all different types of stone. Limestone, marble, sandstone, granite, and on and on and on. And as they're uncrated and brought together, they all seem to be of different size and shape. Some are square, some are rectangle, some are cubicle, some are like cylinder shaped. And as they're brought together, all 50 stones, different types of stones and different shapes, as they're pulled together, they interface perfectly and make a flawless replica of the Jefferson Memorial Monument. How would you account for that? How would you account for that? Any thinking person, if that happened, would conclude that there was a master architect behind the whole project and that he had sent out specific plans to each state and measurements for what he wanted, wouldn't you? Any thinking person would say, all these different stones coming in different shapes, but when you put them together, they fit perfectly. Any thinking person would go, oh, I know what happened. There's an architect and he sent out plans to every state and they sent back the specifics of what he asked Four. And as it came together, he oversaw the project and made sure it all fit together. So it is with the word of God. So it is with the word of God. There is a master architect. In the middle of all of its diversity, you pull it together and it's one unified voice. That kind of unity in the midst of that kind of diversity should only be and can only be explained rationally by saying there is a master architect behind this. That's good. The reliable transmission of the Bible. Here's the argument. Tell me if you've ever heard this one. Well, we can't really trust the Bible because, you know, it's like a game of telephone. It's just been passed on and on over the generations so many times that we just can't trust that what we have now is what was originally written. Right? You know the game of telephone where somebody says something, whispers something into the first person's ear, and then that person whispers th that statement into the next person's ear, and on and on and on until you go around this huge, massive group of people, and by the time you get to the end, you tell the last person, okay, 
say what it is. And it's nothing like the original thing that was said, and that's the fun of the game, right? The fun of the game is that, oh, that's nothing like what was originally said. And that's the argument so many people make about the Bible. We go, hang on, this has been passed down for thousands of years and rewritten and recopied that we can't actually trust that what we have now is what was originally written. No way we can trust that. And, and that because it's been passed down for so long, you know, that's time for legend to develop. And when it was first kind of written down, you know, there was none of this legend about Jesus. That stuff just developed over time. You ever heard those arguments? I hear that stuff all the time. I, I just heard that a few weeks ago. Somebody at work makes that argument to me. Ah, you can't really trust the Bible because it's been passed down. This exact argument. To be fair, this argument only comes from those who haven't actually studied the subject. I'm just going to be honest, okay? So whenever someone makes this argument, you can, you can be certain that you're talking to someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Because no serious scholar or student of ancient literature, even those literature, even those who are atheists, not even, a, not even an atheist, serious scholar or student of ancient literature would make this argument because they know better. They might make other arguments, but they don't make this argument. So the question that we're trying to address is this. Have these writings been passed down to us accurately? Has there been a reliable transmission of the Bible? Is what we have now what was originally written? And the truth is, far more than any other book of antiquity, we can say that the Bible has absolutely been passed down to us with extraordinary precision. Okay? Let's dive into this. Okay? This is where it might feel like school, but man, this is fun for me. Okay? Let's begin with the Old Testament. Okay. Up until recently, the oldest known Hebrew manuscript of any length was not dated any earlier than the first part of the 10th century AD. So that means there's a time gap between the original writings and, and the first manuscripts that we have, a time gap of some 13 to 1400 years from the time of the original writing of the last book of the Old Testament to the first copy that we had. Okay, So that's a pretty big time gap, right? 13 to 1400 years. And you go, I can see why people would make that argument. Okay, 13 to 1400 years, you know, there's between when these events happened and the first manuscript that we have. Yeah, there's time for legend to develop there and time to know whether we kind of, what was passed on to us was accurate in the Old Testament. Then, in 1947, 48, there was a little shepherd boy in the northwest section of the Dead Sea doing what little boys do, playing with stones and throwing them, picking them up and throwing them into a cave. Doing what little boys do, right? And as he threw one stone, he heard a crashing noise inside the cave. And he walked in to discover one of the great archaeological treasures of modern history, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Found a bunch of scrolls. So over the next several months, they went into 11 different caves and they found a treasure that had been in there for some thousand years, precious early copies of the Bible. There were two copies of Isaiah, an entire copy of the Psalms and Leviticus, and thousands of fragments of different sections of the Old Testament. And when the Hebrew scholars gathered together and they saw this and they began to piece the manuscripts together, in an instant, our oldest copy of the Old Testament was pushed back a millennium, right back to the days of the first century church. What they discovered when they started comparing the manuscripts of the oldest that we had previously had to now this millennium earlier manuscripts, what they discovered was the astonishing 
accuracy with which the scriptures had been passed down to us. The word of God had been transmitted through the generations down to us with jaw-dropping accuracy, rivaled by no other ancient document. We know that from Jewish history that the scribes who copied the scriptures took great pains to ensure that they were writing it accurately. In fact, it would often take a scribe several months to copy just one document because they developed this crazy extensive list of rules and practices to govern the whole process. So this is what you had to do. If you were one of the scribes that was tasked with with copying the original and writing it down. So you take the original manuscript of the Old Testament and you, you copy it, right? This is what you had to go through. These are some of the rules, okay? They could only use clean animal skins, both to write on and to bind the manuscripts. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink must be black and of a special recipe. They must verbalize each word aloud while they were writing to minimize mistakes, okay? Listen to this one. They must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah every time they wrote it. There must be a review within 30 days, and if the manuscript required corrections, the entire thing had to be redone. Check this out. The letters, the words, and the paragraphs had all been counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. They would count frontward and backward, and they would find the middle paragraph, the middle word, and the middle letter. And if any one of those did not correspond to the original document, they would have to trash it and start again. And the documents could only be stored in sacred places like synagogues and places like that. And that's just a sample of the rules. That's not all of them. That's just a sample that I picked out to share with you of the rules that a scribe had when making copies of the original text. Why did they go through all that pain and trouble? Why wipe the pen and wash your whole body before you write Jehovah? Why Why? Count the paragraphs and the words and the letters and make sure that you are to a letter, to a letter replicating what's there originally. Why go through all that trouble? Because they believed, and rightly so, that their job was to transmit the very words of God. And there's no room for error. So they were utterly devoted to passing it on with intense precision. And the Dead Sea Scrolls showed us, guess what? They succeeded. How else can we know if they succeeded? Let me give you a couple more things before we finish. When a historian is trying to determine if any ancient writing, any ancient writing, okay, has been passed down to us accurately, they look at a couple of things, okay? I have this in your notes, I believe. A, they're going to look at the time gap, okay? Now, what is the time gap? The time gap is the gap of time from when the author wrote the original to the time when the first copy that we have was written, okay? That's the time gap we were talking about originally with the Old Testament that was pushed back when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Time gap just shrunk by a millennium, okay? And people would handwrite the originals and handwrite the copy, okay? Now, these handwritten documents, both the originals and the copies, are called manuscripts. Stay with me. Both the originals and the copies are called manuscripts. And the smaller the time gap between the original and the copy, first copy that we have, the less room there is for error, obviously, right? 
So first, let's look at some documents outside the Bible. And I think I created a space for you to write some of these things down. Let's talk about Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman historian. The time gap from when he wrote his first manuscript to the first copies that we have is 750 years. Okay? What about Caesar? The time gap for his manuscripts is 1,000 years. What about Plato's tetralogies? You ever heard Plato quoted? What about Plato's tetralogies? The time gap for Plato's tetralogies, 1,200 years. What do you think the time gap for the New Testament is? 50 years. 50 years. I, I, I hope that's mind-blowing to you. This is not even disputable. This is, this is, if you're an atheist, you have to bow to these facts. The first biography we have of Alexander the Great is 400 years after he lived, and no one questions his existence or the accurate transmission of information about him, do we? We, we say all this stuff about Alexander like it's just fact, and the first biography we have of him is 400 years after he lived. And yet we have four biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, within 50 years of his life, and everyone feels free to question them. The evidence we have for Jesus easily outweighs all other figures in ancient history. That is, if we don't trust the New Testament records of Jesus, then we have to. We have to rationally throw out everything else we know or think we know about Caesar, Plato, Alexander, and all other figures of ancient history. B, they'll look at the number of manuscripts. So they look at the time gap. And then they'll look at the number of manuscripts. Now, obviously, the more manuscripts we have, the more evidence we have. And we can track if they jive with each other. Okay, the more manuscripts, the more evidence, and the better chance we have at getting back to the original. Okay, I think the original is this, because the older ones are dated this way. Okay, and we have a mountain of evidence. Okay, or how much evidence do we have? Is it little or is it much? So the more manuscripts we have, the more evidence we have, and the better chance we have at getting back to the original. Let's talk about Caesar again. All that we know about Caesar who is a contemporary of Jesus, is written on 10 manuscripts. What about Plato's Tetralogies? Seven manuscripts. What about Tacitus? Tacitus is quoted all the time today by modern historians. He's one of the greatest Roman historians. Okay, His work in the first century as a historian is just, it's, it's claimed to be irrefutable. Okay? We have 20 manuscripts for Tacitus. What do you think the New Testament is? How many manuscripts do you think we have in the New Testament? Yep, you're right. 24,633 manuscripts and counting. Do you see the difference? I want you to look at your page. If you're taking notes, I want you to soak that in for a second. Okay, they look at the time gap and they look at the number of manuscripts. Okay, and the number of manuscripts, all that we know about Caesar, 10 manuscripts. Plato's Tetralogies, 7 manuscripts. Tacitus, 20 manuscripts. The New Testament, 23,633 manuscripts. Guess which document has the second most manuscripts and how many copies there are? You guess right again. It's the Iliad by Homer. With how many? 
643 manuscripts. Man, that's a close second, trailing the New Testament by only 24,000 copies. No one questions the information about these men. But we hear this argument repeated all the time. You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust that document. You can't trust that what we have has been passed down to us accurately. The Bible is the single most verified ancient document in human history, and there isn't even a close second. I had a friend when I worked at a, a, a different group home years and years and years ago who was an atheist, bordered on Buddhist. He had the book of Romans committed to memory, and he says he almost became a Christian. And here's why. He was very much into history and archaeology, and he said, it's a compelling case. He agreed, and there's no other ancient document. This is an atheist near Buddhist saying there is no other document in ancient history that is as verified as the New Testament is. Not even close. The Bible has been passed down to us with unparalleled accuracy. You can trust that what we have today is what was written. And I think this is a good place for us to pause and reflect on how this has implications for us. Psalm chapter 145, verse four says this. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation passing on to the next generation, the works and acts and truth of God. And so here's what I want us to reflect on. The saints of previous generations have done their part and they have contended for the faith against the false teachings and heresies of their day. And they have faithfully preserved and passed on to us the truth of God's word. And my question, I think God's question to us this morning is, will we be found faithful to do the same? Will we faithfully contend for and preserve and pass down the unaltered, unfiltered, unamended, unabridged truth of the word of God for those who come after us? May it be so. Father, we thank you for our time here today. I pray that you would continue to strengthen our confidence in these scriptures, your word. God, we do not worship a book, we worship you, but we do believe that you have breathed out the scriptures, God, and that they are your revelation to us of your will and your character and your plans and designs for mankind. And so, God, we submit to the authority of the Bible because we submit to the authority of your word, and we believe that the Bible is your word to us. I pray, God, that you would drive deep that convic conviction in our spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.